Welcome back to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode number 75. This is audio from the Barbell Medicine Pain and Rehab Seminar held in Boston, Massachusetts, where I recorded Dr. Derek Miles and Dr. Michael Ray answering questions at the end of their seminar. Slight problem with the audio. The XLR input we used in the recording device uh, didn't work on mics audio. So what I did is I boosted the audio levels from Derek's mic when Michael was talking. And so the audio is still pretty good, but it's not perfect. So hopefully you guys can give us a pass on this one. We'll do better next time. We've already replaced the faulty device. I've also added timestamps in the description below. So if you want to check out a particular question and skip ahead, check those out. And then finally, if you want to join us at the next pain and rehab seminar, uh, click on the link in the description below. It's going to be in Reno, Nevada, myself, Austin, Leah, and I think some of the other Barbell Medicine crew is going to be in attendance as well to check out this new offering from our company. In any event, I won't hold you guys up any longer. Let's get into the Q&A. So, we have curated some questions. I guess I'm going to read these aloud, and then we're going to give our best attempt to answer them. Considering that pain is not only concerned with biology, but also psychosocial factors, and people with congenital insensitivity to pain, can they still experience pain? Or do they not have the ability to create prior experiences and learned responses? That sounds right up your alley to start. All I can think here is, like, does that mean they're not going to like country music? Um, But, like, you know... It gets back to this pain being a multifactorial thing. If you lose a loved one, it hurts. Like I think that would be considered painful. Yeah. And it's not necessarily like someone putting a hot iron on you or whatever we're gonna call the nociceptive input, but like a lot of things hurt from the emotional factor that goes with it. Like it's called heartbreak. Like. You know, that kind of impl- it Im- inherently implies a little bit of tissue damage, even though none's there. And so they're still going to feel things and, and perceive it as what could easily be construed as pain. And, and it gets into the complexity of all of this. Like, it, you know, you hear the, well, I have a high pain tolerance. Okay, well, what does that mean? And, and your pain is different than my pain is, is different than everyone else's pain. It's a unique experience to all of us. So just because you would have some kind of congenital set to where you couldn't experience nociception, then like good on you, but you're still gonna hurt. Yeah, I would say like the last part of that for sure is a good talking point as well. Like you can't experience nociception, which is a very different discussion that you can't experience pain. So who's familiar with like, are you guys familiar with congenital insensitivity to pain, CIP? So it's a congenital abnormality in which you basically can't sense nociception. So there was a paper written by uh, Wassman et al. this year actually that just got released that says congenital insensitivity to pain, a misnomer. And they go through like epistemologically, why is this false? And they're trying to shift like how we label this issue and label it as just insensitivity to nociception. So they can't sense tissue damage. But we were having this discussion with Lucy, you know, yesterday, right, in the pain lecture. Just because she can't communicate with me doesn't mean she can't have pain. Just because you can't have tissue damage that you sense doesn't mean you can't have pain. And that's, that's the argument that they're making. Do we actually know? Shrug emoji. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think we know. Uh, but it's just a lot of conjecture. But I get why people are arguing we shouldn't call it insensitivity to pain. Because that's a huge leap just because you can't sense tissue damage. So I think that was the first part of the, the question. Or do they not have the ability to create prior experiences and learned responses? Uh, that, so that's interesting. Like The priors, I could say they create, but the learned responses, uh, they probably don't have a withdrawal reflex because they don't know that they've actually like had tissue damage or potential for tissue damage. Uh, there's, a, um, there's a documentary on this called something of pain. It was like sensation of pain. I'll have to look it up. I'm totally blanking. Amato, have you seen this documentary? It's a pretty good one. They interview a lady that has congenital, congenital insensitivity to, uh, to nociception, and she talks about like when she had tissue damage, but she talks about it in a manner like we wouldn't use that language typically. It's very much like I felt this fuzzy thing in my leg, and it turned out she got cut. 
like, but it wasn't the way we would think about someone experiencing pain. So their language to describe the experience is very different, which is interesting. What's RPE, rate of perceived exertion number, is usually prescribed for rehab, and how does it progress from session to session, week to week? You wanna go first on that one? Yeah, I'll take this one. Um, it's gonna be some variability in RPE, because really what it comes down to is we need to hit it from some different angles to start working on what would be considered likely graded exposure or um, gradually getting you to frame what is hard. Uh, I typically, my bottom, I'll have someone go as six and live in that kind of six to eight realm, but even then, symptoms are gonna factor in. And you know, initially, there's gonna be a much broader spectrum of was this a seven, was this an eight, and it's starting to have some of that self-reflection of what is hard, what can you do, how much does symptoms be limiting, how we're gonna dose this in. And, and it gives you another talking point with which to discuss, like, are we using sufficient load here? Um. How do you document, justify medical necessary, medically necessary, I think is what they mean, to insurance for strength training? How do you document or justify medical necessity to insurance for strength training? Cite your studies. Um, I mean, yeah, if, yeah, I think I mentioned during the ACL talk that uh, I'll put things about limb symmetry index and then you measure that objectively. Um, even from my initial eval, I tend to take handheld dynamometry measurements on what I can, and then it's much easier to objectively show we had a 20% increase in strength. Like, what's the difference between a four plus out of five and a five out of five? It's like, well, it's all contingent upon the person pushing down and how hard I wanna push. But if I have a handheld dynamometer, I can get an objective number out of that. And it's pretty easy, I think, to write strength training related goals when you have evidence like the lift more trial, board's recommendations, you could write a goal, patient will achieve ACSM physical activity guidelines by participating in resistance training two times a week. I mean, that, that is a behavioral goal that you could objectively obtain. Yeah, don't forget like, we are gonna do this for a therapeutic effect. I have no problem writing that down to validate why I'm doing exercise with someone, especially to the insurance company. I've actually, I've been insurance-based for going on five years now, and I pretty much, if you see me, you get education, or we design an exercise prescription to take you from where you're at to where you want to be, if that's what your case necessitates. I don't think I've, knock on wood, yet had an insurance company come to me and be like, why did you deadlift this patient? We're not paying for that. Um, and I don't get crazy with my details to insurance companies. It's just like, here's why I'm doing this, this is what we did. So, but like Darren said, if they come at you, Sometimes I do have to validate, like, I need more visits from an insurance company for a reason. Um, so if I have to write up my argument for why I need more visits, that's a perfect opportunity to cite studies. Be like, they're not meeting this. Like, ACL would be limb symmetry index. Here's why. Here's what we need to do. Validate it. And I've not been denied for that yet either. All right. I'm under the impression that evidence shows general exercise is as effective as specific exercise for chronic low back pain. However, there are or there a, no R, probably should be R, context where you do prescribe special, you ready for this? Mm -hmm. Core exercises, <laughs> like, it's getting better, dead bugs, bird dogs, etc. I can say that I have not given a dead bug or a bird dog in, how many years have I been in practice now? 11, 11 dead. years? I think you're at 11. So I would say there are not specific instances where I give dead bugs and bird dogs. No, not unless they're just like, I really like getting in the dead bug position. And I'm like, well, why? <laughs> and then we'll start from there. And if they're just like, oh, and I just really love doing it, I'm like, I guess that's what we're gonna do then. But not for any specific reasons as it relates to your back. Like this usually leads into like the Stuart McGill shit, right? It's like, oh, I need to do the big three for this very specific reason because biology and mechanics and blah, 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 and so on and so forth. And that's all bullshit. And I have no problem saying that. Um, and the, it's really an issue, too. Like, I've had a case, um, Charlie said it on it with me, where a guy had been doing McGill Big Three and nothing but McGill Big Three for like two years. And he was talking to me about their persistency of symptoms. And they were like, I wake up every day and I do all of the exercises in the morning, I go for the walks that he prescribes. And then I do it all again at night. 
and I haven't been resistance training, and I really just want to squat, bench press, and deadlift, and it's been two years. And I was like, why do you think you can't go do those things? Well, McGill says, <laughs> da, da 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 about these exercises. I was like, yeah, that's bullshit, and let's get you back to doing the things you want to do. Could you do dead bugs and get relief? Sure, but it has nothing to do with like the actual movement of completing a dead bug. And I certainly agree with Derek, like I wouldn't go into the cold, the whole core discussion at all. And even yesterday I said, you know, a lot of times I will give a single leg bridge as an exercise on day one, and not because I think I'm doing anything magical for your hamstring or glute, but because the exercise is inherently hard, but achievable. And it's, there's nothing special about it. It's much more of like, you didn't think you could do this and you did it, or like, you can barely pick your butt up off the table. Do we need to be participating in some other behaviors that might increase our risk of injury? It's not specific to it, it's a teaching tool. And yeah, I think it gets into like, and we talk about this with passive modalities, like the narrative that's being disseminated to validate the treatment is what we take issue with. If you just said like, I want this as our entry point to activity to get you to lift your ass up off the ground, I'm cool with that. But if you spin that in a different way, where you're like, we need to do this because L4, L5, disc, whatever, I'm no longer cool with that, which would be McKenzie, right? Which is often narrative that's given with that. I feel like you want to say something. No, I'm just impressed by your potty mouth because Jordan asked us not to swear as much. And normally I'm, oh. the, I'm the one that's like the emergency broadcast system. Yeah, I forgot we were going to record this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He'll, he'll bleep it. Yeah. He's already programming. Um, but out of all of this, I think a big part of it is not getting hooked on specificity out of it. And there is no one exercise that is magical relief for low back pain. And sometimes I need to give you things that may be a little on what I would traditionally call the silly side to show you that you can move, but I'm not par or partially activating your external oblique because your right diaphragm is under inflating. It's like, no, like I want you comfortable moving and we need to add some variability in that movement pattern just to show you we can get there. It's not because something is over or underactive. We still don't know what the hell core is and we should probably just stop using the word would be where I would go for that. Be nice. Yeah. Then I wouldn't have to try to have those conversations. Like I think where we get most frustrated is like someone had another healthcare professional give this narrative and now we're having to take time to try to debunk it and work through it but if the buy-in is so strong from the prior healthcare professional you can run up against a roadblock <clears throat> that can be difficult to get through so but that's why we get frustrated it's like oh now i've got to spend x number of minutes discussing with you why this is bs but try to do it in a manner where we have buy-in and trust and i don't offend you so in addition to your like low back i know Obviously, resistance training, we want to do that, but how much are you guys doing, um, like, movement variability stuff for the sole purpose of getting people in different positions? Um, like, or positions, or movements that they, that are fundamental to your body and your spine that they suck at. What's a movement that's fundamental to your spine? Like, say, like, they're terrible at rotating, and you see that during their mobility assessment, and, um... I don't do a mobility assessment. No, nothing? No. Okay. And even out of that, like... You know, I was telling someone yesterday, I, I was a sweep rower. I spent my entire collegiate career Zoolandering and only turning left. <laughs> and I think it's hilarious whenever I've went to courses where they do a mobility assessment because everyone just assumes the fact that I can rotate way more to my left side. Like, oh, you can't go that far on your right side. We need to address that. I'm like, have you ever considered that might be an adaptation to the sport that I did all through college? But say it's associated with fear and pain. But well, then we need to do it. it. Because their body's telling them not. Or they're do, not doing that motion and they're fearful of it, but if we can get them confident doing it, they'll be better at it, say, in an unanticipated situation. Not like asymmetrical is bad or mm -hmm. anything like that, but fearful yeah. and pain. So I start with the why. Like that's almost always, not always, but a good majority of the time I return to is like, why do you need to be able to rotate to your right or your left? If they're like, oh, because my job is an assembly line work and I constantly am turning to the right, I'm like, cool, we'll address this. But not for any of the reasons of like, you can't rotate because of an internal oblique issue or something. It's just like, I need you to be comfortable doing this because it's a part of your livelihood. So we're gonna address this. But I don't like, when I am consulting on a low back case, I'm not like, 
oh, it looks like you can't rotate to the left as well as to the right. That's a problem I need to fix. So I'm not creating issues that we don't have evidence to say actually exist. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I mostly see it, obviously, with extension. People are not doing that because we're always in flexion. And I just, yeah. I know I know the McKenzie side of things is that you're doing it to put it, like, to get ridiculous symptoms to go away. But if they can't inherently do that motion and they're forced to do it at some point, like, they can't even go past zero degrees of extension is usually what I'm seeing. Yeah, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, <laughs> but my issue with McKenzie, if it was just, like, here's some exercise. Singular? Really? <laughs> I think I said issues, but... Oh, I heard singular. No, there's... I heard singular on that. A, it doesn't really work out where we're, like, flexion it causes disc issues, and therefore we need to go to an extension and vice versa. Like, that actually isn't substantiated well right. in the evidence. So that narrative kind of falls away. But then it just... It takes a very biomedical, biomechanical approach to the discussion of complexity, which I have an issue with. And then you attach someone's name to it, I have an issue with that, because then we're about profitability off of perceived authority. I mean, McGill, again, is a great example of that. Like, this very well-regarded individual who attached her name to three random exercises that people probably did in the 1950s and thought nothing about it. But now we have, like, a name attached to it from a position of authority, and it's like, oh, it's the big three. Like, I need to do this. I joke with them all the time. I'm going to come up with the right big two, because if you need, if you need three, you're not doing it right. <laughs> so. And I think really getting into it, if there's a lot of things that you probably suck at that you don't know until someone starts like picking it apart on you. And do I need to make it a problem really out of it? Like, I don't know that I fully buy into like we're always in flexion. Like there's a lot of variability from human to human. And, and like, I'm not going to arbitrarily assign something as pathological that could just be a normal variant in things. Now, if we're doing an activity that requires some of that motion, then yeah, likely I, I'm going to start adding it in some. But you know, if if my 65-year-old grandma just really wants to be able to go out and work in the yard, like that's really where my goal is. I don't need to overcomplicate it by adding in just more layers to the problem. Number five, in regard to ACL rehab risk reduction, I've seen some literature on core training. How is this defined? And is this something <laughs> that we should consider for rehab? No. Um, I'll still go straight back to the Worth paper. And if you look at our metrics where not very many athletes are actually hitting their strength goals that are clearly defined in the literature. Working on something as esoteric as core training, it seems a little superfluous. And once again, like there is good literature that neuromuscular training and doing things like landing mechanics and cutting mechanics reduces the risk of future ACL training. But nothing about activating your external oblique in some arbitrary exercise is gonna do that. And until, it still goes back, no athlete has ever been too good at the basics. If you're hitting your limb symmetry indexes, you're working on your neuromuscular training, and you wanna throw in whatever you consider your definition of constituting core work, it's perfectly fine. But until you're hitting those baseline measurements, you know, it's, you don't get dessert, is the word. Like, eat your vegetables. Oh man. There was a long thread in the pain forum on the McKinsey method. <laughs> that tends to happen. Regardless of opinion, evidence on the McKinsey method itself, do you use or do you utilize directional preference spine exercises for spine pain? I do. Sure. Yeah. If I, but I talk about it from the sense of you're sensitized to going into flexion. So I'm going to get you to go into flexion in a less threatening manner than what you've been doing it. I don't talk about nucleus propulsive moving this way or that way or anything else. It's just like, hey, it seems as though we don't want to go into flexion and we probably need you to get into flexion throughout life. So let's find a way in which we can get you into flexion with which to build from back to your activities you want to be able to do. Same thing with extension. Hey, it looks like you kind of don't want to go into extension, but we kind of need you to do that. Here's why and here's how we do that. I go the other way with it a lot of times and if you have an extension bias, especially if something is really acute, then I'm like, hey, this is where we're gonna start. 
we found our one thing that you seem to benefit from, so let's go do more of that thing. And then we'll try a new thing. And if you tolerate that, now we have two things we can work on. And eventually we want to consume all the things. And it's just, when can I layer it in? But I do think, especially with ridiculous individuals, there's decent evidence for working to centralize them. And if you can find that, then hell yeah, I'm gonna do it. Yeah, I think it's a good point on like ridiculous symptoms. The big question is like, should we resistance train these people if they want to resistance train? We don't have any evidence that says you shouldn't resistance train someone with ridiculous symptoms. There seems to be a lot of fear around that topic. Like, I resistance train people all the time that present with ridiculous symptoms. It's not a problem. But what I tell them is like, I don't want this severely increasing after we do exercise. And so if we start and your baseline's here and it's dramatically gone up here, we've probably exceeded your individual tolerance level we need to back off a little bit and then build you back up. So, which I think is kind of similar to what you're talking yeah. about. How much do we push into this situation? Yeah. And is that like nothing is linear in life conversation? Like there's gonna be setbacks along the way and you're like, well, you know, we overshot our things today. Maybe we need to dial back the things. Turn it down from 11. What do yep. you mean by you start introducing flexion type of movement? Could be anything like, you know, I can't bend over and put my shoes on without this exacerbating symptoms. I'm like, I'm probably going to need you to figure out how we can do this effectively, which may just be me saying, keep trying to put your shoes on. Or maybe you need a little more time with me to work through these narratives and I might go do some other thing. Like, can I get you to touch your toes? Can I get you to deadlift? Can I get you to do whatever? Or we went into flexion and last week we were at mid chin or mid thigh. This week we're below knees. That's progress. Um, I tend to frame it as the shoe dance yeah. because I've had good ridiculous symptoms and I've definitely done the shoe dance in my apartment where you're like trying to get the shoe on and it hurts like hell and you get it in and then you like dance and curse for 30 seconds and then you're like, all right, now I got to bend down to tie it. Right. And like, <laughs> yeah. And you know, it's, but also like, it, like I think having had it, it kind of makes it a little bit less threatening me talking about it too. Cause like it sucks, but like. Yeah. It's not like there's this, once again, magical day that you wake up and it's like gone. It's like, I did it today, yeah. And it's just making it clear this is gonna come a little bit more over time. What do you guys do when doctors put weight restrictions on what people can lift? Ignore it. <laughs> Ignore it. Um, it uh, I'm gonna, it depends it here. Um, if it's due to a surgical restriction, uh, it's gonna get some attention out of me, yeah. Sure. But if it's just like, you should never lift over 20 pounds again, yeah, blatantly ignore. Yeah. What if you're a trainer and not a clinician? Uh, I mean, right. well, but it's one of those things like, I think the more familiar you get with the literature, the more you realize that you do have freedom to operate well within constraints. Right. No, I agree. It's just, what happens if they come back and say, oh, you did this and this happened and this doctor said, don't lift 20 and you lifted 50. I say, like, you had a good plan in place. I mean, I'm pretty sure a doctor's looked at a patient before and said, you should probably stop smoking. And if they keep smoking, like, it's, yeah. So just be clear, like, you know, there's gonna be inherent risks in everything we do. But if we stay within these restrictions, like a lot of life is predicated upon being able to pick up more than 20 pounds. So is your goal to pick up more than 20 pounds? Yeah, and we need to slowly get you well beyond that. Is there anything we can do to make sure efficacy is found before a modality, surgery, or treatment is used? Yeah, so I've thought a lot about this because um, this gets at social learning. So I've, I've, re I've regularly said in the pain conversation, has everybody seen Men in Black? And like Will Smith has the, uh, what is it, like the neuralizer, and he's just like, flash and he's like here's what happened and he resets all priors right we need that for pain so like if i could do that and be like all right dude look this is what pain is here's how we should be responding so on and so forth which is hard because the individual defines pain somewhat but if we could do that from like a, a mass campaign situation and kind of really shift the thing how we understand and how we approach the discussion we probably could instill self-efficacy a lot faster and better collectively as like a culture uh, and I think like we at uh, Barbell Medicine, that's one of our like main goals is like public education about a vast array of topics. Like 
that's what you heard Jordan talking about all the things they were going to lecture on at their seminar. And so we know, like we're acutely aware, education is where we should be hedging all of our, our a good chunk of our bets to make a broad-based impact. Can you read that question one more time? Because didn't they ask about knowing when to use a passive modality? No, they were saying, is there anything we can do to make sure efficacy is found before a modality, surgery, or treatment is used? Well, I mean, anything new, you're always going to be out on a limb, but if you look at the totality of evidence for passive modalities, like if something new came out, like it would need to hit pretty hard. But the problem is we focus more on getting a trademark than we do on getting the evidence to back up what we're doing. And, you know, I really think at some point we may get this graph thing figured out to where there is something for ACL reconstruction where it has good efficacy. But like it just depends on where you want to be on the bleeding edge of doing either as a guinea pig or as a clinician involved with it but you know if you had more of some procedure and you have some good like evidence-based pt on the back end of it probably actually could inflate the outcomes for things where it's not necessarily like that it's better than anything else it's just you're checking all the boxes on the basics we probably make a lot of things look a hell of a lot better if we actually adhere to what the literature says we should be doing. Some of it's how science is just conducted, right? Like you have a case study that gets introduced as like, oh, I had this new thing, a new way of doing things, and that's the entry point into introducing it into the evidence. But then sometimes we have jumping off points from that kind of study where the randomized controlled trials don't get conducted for a long time, which is what happened in like Nier's situation with shoulder impingement. It's what's happened with the knee as well. So it's just being like, yeah, that's cool, you found that, let's try to replicate that, let's try to do better controlled studies, and then make a decision of whether we should start using it. The issue is we don't wait. We're just like, oh, this is cool, we got results, let's run with it. All right, this one, bear with me, there's a lot to read. <laughs> All right, I'm recovering from rotator cuff surgery for a supraspinatus tear, anterior cable, on my right shoulder, plus a hypertrophic long head of biceps tendon tear. Separation, this is a power clean injury. Right now I'm about eight weeks out, still working through simple rehab exercises to regain strength and mobility. I know each, each individual case is different, but I'm wondering how long it generally takes to get back to full activity in your experience. My doctor and PT seem to think I'm on, on or ahead of schedule so far. They're projecting getting back to lifting in the third or fourth month, so I guess six to eight weeks. Is there a particular program you'd recommend for strength recovery at that point? For what it's worth, I'm in my early 50s and live for general strength and health, but not for competition. I think some of this is really contingent upon what we're going to consider back to sport. Um, honestly, like at 12 weeks, I don't know how cool I would be programming a clean in for somebody just because like, I think at that point we'd be doing a lot of lifting, but I'm probably not really going down the speed road yet. We might be introducing some technique at that point, but I don't know that I'm gonna be hitting anything super heavy. Um, but that doesn't mean, once again, we can't train with it. Um, I think some of this, it, it gets into a little bit of the, the nuance of knowing about some of the heterogeneity and rotator cuff repair literature and like how hard you wanna push somebody in you know, I made the point earlier, if I didn't have, or if I had an athlete come in and I couldn't see the portal scars for the surgery, how would it affect what's going on? And I think here you could also make that case, but for a rotator cuff tear in particular, I guess my clinical side is a little bit more conservative in that we can do a lot of training, but I probably wouldn't be hitting too much in the speed realm until four months. Yeah, and so like, there's ways to think about this process of introducing stuff with what I call high velocity or speed-based movements like that. And so you could do it kind of a graded exposure. We could do a standing tall muscle clean of just going through with a very light training bar, like a 15 pound bar, if you're tolerating that, or even a PVC pipe as step one or a wooden dowel. And just from the standing position going into pulling upwards and going into front rack position, like, that is the beginning stage of the receiving position of a clean, right? 
and that's the start to just getting back into doing the movement. And then you can go, so there's two ways you could do it. You could do bottom up or top down. So top down would be going from that, and then I just take it from high hang to mid thigh to below knee to shin to ground. Once we're working through all of that, then we can worry about do we add load. But to Derek's point, like how quickly you're doing a movement and how much weight you're doing are two factors that I'm not concerned with, especially that early on. And then you could also do it from top or from bottom up. So you just start with mid shin pulls, even if it's a PVC pipe or a wooden dowel, like it's you're still going through the ranges of motion and through the movement and then working your way up. And then once we're able to do that, you can do things like from the floor muscle cleans. And then from that, you can do various complexes, you can go to power clean. And then the last thing would be a full clean. So it's just finding like as you're respecting tissue healing parameters, working through the process, hopefully whoever whoever had this question working collaboratively with your team, being like, hey, here's what I want to do. What's your game plan to get me from where I'm at day one post-op to back to doing this activity? How are we getting there? And why are we doing what we're doing? So hopefully there's a collaborative discussion ongoing, but it's just finding that entry point, respecting physiology and healing, and then building the person up. There's no like perfect scenario here. And it's always going to be contingent upon how much risk you want to accept. Like, and this is even contingent upon us as clinicians. Like some people are a little bit more conservative than others and it's not good nor bad, but I think the more aware you are of where you fall on the spectrum, the more you can kind of have an honest conversation with somebody on what their goals are as well. And if it's more conservative or more aggressive than where you fall on the spectrum. I would say I'm likely on the aggressive side of the spectrum. Yeah, but you know, still I, I think I would have a little bit of hesitance putting too much velocity stuff into a muscle repair right, at four so months. Yeah. yeah. So. Yep. And, and that would be like, Derek was talking about confronters and avoiders. If I was worried about you being a confronter and only eight weeks post-op, I'm probably gonna restrict the shit out of you. Like, yeah, we're not doing that because I'm worried about you just overreaching too soon, too quickly. With the amount of older clinicians who refuse to update their clinical practice, where do, where do we fall in this spectrum? I think at this point, like, well, the definition of older clinician is older than you. Good. So, I'll like, it. it's so but you're old. someone who's like eleven years and six months Person isn't 40. is obvious. See, I'm trying to not curse, <laughs> um, but no, like, it. You want me to finish the question? Yeah, okay. yeah. All right. <laughs> So with the amount of dinosaurs who refuse to update clinical practice, read research or even question their own treatment style, how do you see our field progressing forward? How do you handle older clinicians who do not read research or update practice? Their license isn't my license. I can control what I can control. Like I want to interact with people who want to change the profession for the better. If you want to go be dumb in your clinical decision making, Go do it. Like, I, I can't stop you from doing that. But in the same regard, if you're going to take on the responsibility of trying to obtain a doctoral level degree, you sure as hell better act like one. And, you know, I'm never going to change the majority of clinical practice patterns. And, you know, I've already made a concession. I don't have it all figured out either. I'm sure someone somewhere who has a decent understanding of some research could look at my practice and be like, you could improve here. I hope to meet that person someday. And like, just because you're surrounded by dinosaurs, like it's, it sucks, but you know, you can talk to them and try and change, but ultimately it's on what you do with your license. Yeah. I think this gets at too, because I've had this conversation, especially in the chiro profession. They're like, well, I know the research on that, but I'm still doing it in practice. Does that make me a bad person? Yes. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not here to morally judge you, and I'm wanting to try to change your belief system, so it's probably better I don't judge you. So I probably wouldn't say that to them. Even though you're judging the shit out of them? There's a solid possibility. Okay. <laughs> But you got to decide what you're going to live with, right? Like you got to go home at the end of the day, look yourself in the mirror. And, Am I okay with the things I did with patients today? Scope of practice is like the ultimate determinant, right? Legally, are they allowed to do that? Yeah. Should they? That's a very different question to have. So if I want to change your mind about something, I'm probably not going to go out of the gate and be like, 
why are you doing this? You shouldn't be doing this. You're a dumbass. Stop doing that and judge you. I'm probably gonna be like, well, here's what the evidence says. Do you want to talk to me about why you still think this or why you're doing that? Some people might not care at all. And it's like, I'm not wasting my time on you. Move on with life. Well, part of the reason I took the angle I did with the whole evidence lecture out of this seminar was because obviously just saying this is a confidence interval, this is a p-value, this is what it means, this is how it works, doesn't change anyone's mind. But the more you can become aware of what it takes to change your mind and start grading where you are on the spectrum of having your mind change or how what degree of certainty you hold on things, the more likely you are to dial that in. And, you know, once again, I think one of the big take-homes, hopefully, from this weekend is be wary of people that are certain in their claims. And you want to seek out the people that are going to question and try and build a network out of that. Like, there's no way I can ever read all the research. So even, like, best case scenario, if I got as close to LD50 on caffeine as I can, like, I'm still never going to read everything. So I have to rely on other people in my network in order to be able to inform me or at least point me in the right direction. Like, since I moved to Barbell Medicine, or in Barbell Medicine, but actually since I've moved to my position now at Stanford, there's a lot more focus on the youth athletic training. And I haven't read as much on some of the joint specific things because that's just where my practice has taken me. And I've joked with Mike since we first met that I was gonna turn him into a shoulder guy because I hate treating shoulders. And I have been successful in that mission and it's been amazing. <laughs> so now I- You played a small role. Oh, it's beautiful. My, my plan has... My first patient was a shoulder patient, and I was like, oh, time to learn. Yeah. Let's go read some shit. So. Yeah. But, you know, now I don't have to read as much shoulder stuff because I have Mike that I can rely on for it. This gets at, like, um, I think about this a lot with, like, philosophy. Like, um, Amato and I have had this discussion, and we, you and I have had this discussion as well. Like, I really like philosophy a lot. Will I ever have sufficient time to read it as much as someone who's getting a PhD in philosophy? No. Will I ever have as much time to read about any other topic that I'm not specializing in myself? No. So at some point I have to build a network of trust with other people who are looking into these things and have more time to do so. So it's important to surround yourself with a network of people you trust and the information they're disseminating you can depend upon, but with the understanding that sometimes they may be wrong as well. So it's just not a free pass, which if I said something about the shoulder and Derek was like, hmm, I don't know about that, we'd probably have a conversation just like we did with Tenonopoly. Yeah. How do you recommend beginning resistance training after joint replacement? I mean, you, you've really seen the literature move now to where POD 1, POD 0, a lot of times we're getting people up and walking now. And it used to be that wasn't the case. And there's increasing evidence that getting individuals started early on this has better long-term outcomes. Now, there's going to be layers to this as well. You may have post-operative restrictions on weight-bearing or, uh, you know, range of motion restrictions and it's working within those constraints and that doesn't mean we can't do other things along the way but really the sooner I can get you moving the sooner we can start and starting may be or is likely to be just with some body weight stuff but hey once that starts getting to be an RPE 4 then time to strap some weight on it yeah uh, I've got a a uh, 65 year old on my remote schedule right now who has bilateral THA and she's doing full depth squatting. Uh, I think she did like 100 and something pounds last week for sets of six and it's beautiful. But when we started, like she didn't really have any rehab whatsoever after either post-op situation. And so she would go to squat and it was just like the smallest amount of range of motion ever. And so we were like, well, there's our starting point. We've got to figure out how to keep getting you more and more into that position. And so I think I've been working with her since July and she did her full depth squatting probably in the last two weeks and it's amazing. But, and she loves it. Like she wants to go do a competition now and you know, outside of like, that was one of her goals anyways, she's got all the other positive benefits of physiology from resistance training and then self-efficacy in herself to be able to do things throughout life, even though she has bilateral you know, total hip replacements. But even there, like, I think it is important to build relationships or try and build relationships with your physicians as well. Because like in Florida, I ran a gym and half the people who came to it were the ortho residents. 
And so while we were lifting, a lot of times we end up having conversations about cases and I think it offers some insight and it works both ways. Like if you go and you ask the average ortho surgeon what a physical therapist does, I don't know that I'd want to hear the answer to that. And that's problematic for multiple reasons. But I also think it's part of the reason that you see things like strengthen your VMO persist because it's not a knock on them. They just don't really know. I mean, how well does the average person in here understand like an MPFL surgery? Well, we don't know what they do and it works the other way as well. What tips do you have or general advice for getting patients to buy into the BPS model? Bonus question. Especially when clinical coworkers promote a biomedical model. Oh shit. Um, be a human. Yeah. Yeah. It, it sounds like overly simple, but like stop talking to people like they're some structure and talk to them like they're a human. Like it's really not hard to get by in most of the time if you just talk to someone like it is a person sitting there in front of you. And it turns out if you do that, then patients start taking notice of it and you start getting more referrals on your schedule asking for you because you didn't treat them like a hu or treat them like a knee, you treated them like a person. And you know what works really well for getting your coworkers to turn heads is when all of a sudden you start getting all these self referrals coming in. And, you know, changing coworkers' minds is always going to be a difficult thing. And I fully am aware that I have a strong personality and it's not my strong suit to sit there and like negotiate the nuance out of some things with some of my coworkers. And it's something I work on trying to get better at. Still not good, give myself a solid C. Um, but like, if you put a patient in front of me, I'm gonna sit there and we're gonna have a conversation. Like, uh, I wanna know what you enjoy doing. Like, what can't you do anymore? Like, what books do you read? If a movie was being made about your life, who plays you? And what band or person does the soundtrack? Yeah, we've talked about those questions before. Yeah, and like, there's always gonna be downtime where you, or just sitting there talking with the person. But I also think it's important to literally just sit there and talk with the person. And having those conversations is one of the best ways to get them in, because what is that conversation? I would make a case that's a psychosocial conversation. Yeah, I think I don't talk about models. It just doesn't make sense to me. Like, um, to sit someone down and be like, yeah, so there's this thing called the biopsychosocial model. Like, I feel like I've already lost them. They're like, yeah, cool, dude. Why does my knee hurt? Um, so I, I just talk about things like multifactorialness, like things that are related to them. Is that a word? Do you use that when yes. you, when you're no. talking to patients? No. Okay. But I talk about <laughs> the variables that could be related to the situation. So like what's going on in your life is one of those easy things. Like what else is happening? What else are we dealing with? What else can we talk about? And those things come out in conversation when you are just being a human to another human being. Like when I ask you about your life and try to make a connection with you, if I know someone has kids, like how are your kids doing? If I know they went to a new job, how's the new job going? If I know whatever's going on in their life, I try to ask follow-up questions in the future, make notes about it, just be a human being to them. Um, and I think that helps out a lot with kind of approaching what the whole BPS model was meant to do, which it wasn't even specifically for pain. It was just getting you to see a holistic kind of approach. So that would be the first step. Like I wouldn't, go down the rabbit hole of models with people. Oh yeah, the clinical coworkers. I mean, yeah, he could, you could speak about it. I don't have coworkers, so. I would just be like, you're fired. Like, go away. <laughs> if only. Um, no, it's, in the position I was brought in for, part of it was to be an educator to my coworkers. And it sounds like a pretty simple thing, but when you get right down to it, like, you're never gonna listen to somebody you don't like. And, you know, there are individuals that I've discussed things with on the interweb that I'm sure have some decent points, but they're such pricks that I'm never going to listen to them. I think, too, like on the Internet, to interject for a second, like, I have a feeling, we've talked about this, if I were sitting across from that person at the bar sharing a beer, those conversations would go totally different. 
yeah. for the most part. Like it would not unfold how it unfolds on the internet. Well, but even like in, in sitting here in front of you, like it, it work a lot of times, like you take steps to try and get buy-in out of it. And you know, we hold a journal club and some people attend it and they want to be a part of it. And we discuss making it mandatory. And my stance is if you don't want to be here, you're not going to be here. I'm not going to make you be here. Like you're the one who's missing out. We're talking about things that are going to affect our practice. But over time, like if you start getting some buy-in out of your coworkers, all of a sudden that person that was really hesitant early on, they might start turning around a little bit. Like this isn't like an inflection point where all of a sudden it's like, well, who we did it. We're, we're getting on the same track. It's going to be a series of gradual small wins, but you know, I would be very interested to hear my boss answer this question on how she thinks I do with this. Just because like, it is something that I try and work on, but I'm more than willing to admit that when it comes to changing coworkers' minds, I can improve on that. I also think about it from the standpoint of like, I don't need you to be me and the world probably can't handle that. So it's okay to think differently, but what evidence are you using to back up your position is ultimately what matters to me. So even if you like, aren't thinking about things similarly, that's okay, but it still matters to me, like how are we helping people and what evidence are we using to substantiate your position? So if you've got some valid arguments that contradict me, maybe I haven't considered them and I need to talk to you. I'm cool with that. But if you talk to me and you're like, well, I just do it because that's the way I've done it for 20 years. Yeah, I don't care. Is there any context that you do recommend manual therapy no. or stretching? So here's what I'll say after my hard no. I do use habituation for neural tension stuff. I don't consider that stretching. I consider it graded exposure. What's that? Um, if someone has what would be considered neural tension is how it's referred to in the literature. It's ridiculous symptoms that you can test for. So like pain down your leg or pain down your arm. Um, there are some movements you can do that would by most standards be considered a stretch, but I certainly frame it through. We're not doing this in order to change tissue. We want to get you tolerating more and more positions. Well, yeah, when I like, so in mobility explain, when I talk about that, I think dynamic stretching is kind of a misnomer. Yeah because it really is just active movement through positions. So it's like, I don't even know if we should be calling it that, but it's been called that for so long, that's where it's at. When, so Jordan and I did a video on this, uh, maybe like two or three weeks ago, because uh, we got this question on a Q&A, and that's up on one of our YouTube videos. And the person asked like, would you ever recommend stretching? And obviously, having listened to us all weekend, I don't like absolutes, but so, Clinically speaking, or from a performance standard, typically no. But if I talk to someone, and they were like, I really love yoga, and I don't see myself ever being physically active in any other context, and I like the community of it, unless I go do yoga, then I'd be like, yeah, go do yoga, fuck it. Like, I don't, that's fine. If it's gonna get you active, and it gets you around a group of people, and it builds community and support, I'm okay with it. And yoga is more of like, we don't think about this, but more of like isometric holds anyways, rather than just like in-range static stretching. You definitely triggered somebody because they're going to be listening to this and be like, no, you're assuming that all yoga is the same. I, I bet over the past five years of my career, I, I know over the past 10 years, I have not built a single unit of manual therapy. I'm very comfortable saying that. Um, during my residency year, I probably did a little bit, but n now like I'll throw a manip every now and then if it's warranted and now that I work in peds, I haven't done one in, how long have I been at Stanford now? Two and a half years. So I probably actually haven't done one in close to like three, three and a half years. But if it's like, feels good, it takes me like three seconds to do. Like I normally like set it up, do it and I'm like magic. <laughs> and just make it as like non-important as I possibly can. Yeah, it, well, so like, uh, I have a ton of Cairo friends that ask me this question. They're like, well, I've built out this kind of mill in which people come and see me you know, two times a week for their joint manipulations or their manual therapy or ART or ISTM or joint needling. But now I've realized the evidence, what do I do? And I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Good luck. That's a tough spot, man. You're probably gonna lose some business and have to be willing to accept that um, and have some tough conversations and like, we stand up here and talk all weekend about the things that we think we know and why we've built out our conclusions from the evidence. And I'm sure, and hopefully, we will be wrong in the future. That's kind of the point. That's how these things work. 
So what, what I talked to him about is I'm like, look, you're just going to have to say, that's what I previously thought. I've realized that that's not the best way to approach the situation. Here's how we can move forward based on what I currently know now. And if you're not willing to say you're wrong or we're wrong or live in that uncertainty, those are very tough conversations. But what you will find is people appreciate you being honest and upfront and a human being, which is the understanding and acceptance like we will be wrong. And then you can move forward and build out your practice from there. But if you're not willing to have those uncomfortable conversations or even have loss of patient flow for a little bit, then it's probably less likely you're gonna to wanna to change. I think some of it too, we have to remember that like the populations we work with, because I have some clinician friends that I respect a lot that work in like the VA system and they're much more predisposed to doing manual therapy. And I know they are just as well read as I am on it. And they have some interesting perspectives and I respect those. Like in my current population that I work with and even at the University of Florida when I was there, like there was no, it rarely was there anything that I would even remotely consider it to be warranted. And once again, I think some of it gets back to that conversation about like getting the hard reps in. And there were certainly times where I probably could have done a little bit of manual therapy to get a little bit better buy-in early, but then I don't get a rep of having that hard conversation. Like I was saying earlier, the narratives are ultimately the issue. Like, you've got to validate what you're doing somehow. So what, what, how are you eliciting buy-in? Like, I need to rub on you, why? I need to stick a needle in you, why? If you're going to go in and be like, this is all bullshit, placebo, and it's contextual effects and assigned meaning, and da 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 and then do the treatment, you're probably going to mitigate your own outcomes because they're going to lose faith in what you're doing. And that's most likely, I don't want to make a general statement, but it, I would be hard-pressed to find clinics that that's actually happening. Like usually there's something being said to validate the intervention and that something lacks evidential support. And that's where I take a lot of issue with these things. But what if I say magic? I would respect you a little more. I do the jazz hands. Yeah. Yeah. The neuromodulation dance. Yeah. yeah. Cold glitter. Yeah. But you got to sprinkle it like the salt guy. <laughs> but it obviously has to go on clockwise. Oh yeah. If you put the glitter on counterclockwise completely changes the treatment Mars pattern. Mars to be in retrograde too. Anteriorograde. Oh. What do you do with patients with so much pain they can't find any tolerable level to start at? Talk to them. Yeah. That's a really big like, what meaning have you assigned to pain conversation? What, and what do we mean by a lot? Obviously it's a lot to them, but what do they think about that? What are their thoughts about the pain they're experiencing? And then I can have those conversations. You're like, I understand that's how you're feeling. That's what you think. And I can try to stifle some of those worries and concerns and potentially catastrophic thinking and then try to move them away from that. So we'll get a little personal for a second. My father passed away in July. And so I've been dealing with the estate and everything related to it. And of course, I work at Barbell Medicine, so a lot of things get framed through a pain conversation. And it's really weird whenever you have a conversation on anything related to dad because the first thing you hear, and I'm sure even like a couple of you thought it when I said that, was I'm sorry for your loss. And it's kind of a weird kind of programmed automatic thing out of it. And like, it honestly is like the last thing I wanna hear because like, I'm dealing with it. I, I don't want you to keep bringing attention to it. And like when people address it and they're like, okay, you know, it is what it is and we can kind of move past it and start working on whatever we need to accomplish out of it, that's when you really like make some progress out of it. And I think there's a lot of parallels there for how you discuss things with people in pain. Like, I mean, one of the worst parts about dealing with the last few weeks of dad was just sitting there and like waiting because you knew that it was on the horizon, but when's it gonna happen? And like my best friends out of it all were all sitting there like, listen, like, I know there's nothing we can do right now, but if you need to talk, if we need to listen, like, I'm here for you. And that was greatly appreciated out of it. But you think about, like, someone who's in, like, a pretty good amount of pain and not able to move all that much, like, sitting there and talking at them as a clinician isn't likely the best way of dealing with it. But, you know, if we can't do a whole lot, having a conversation about what you're feeling, what you're doing, what our goals are, what we're working towards, 
what can we currently do, I think is imperative out of it. And it gives us a frame with which to start. So I'm going to bring up a conversation that you and I have previously had and one that I had with Bob last night, which is the nail on the forehead video. Oh, yeah. Which, if you've not seen this, I highly recommend it. It's not the nail is the name of the video. Yes. And, um, like, so this gets into relationship stuff as well, for sure. But it's like, okay, I realize, like, Erica is very upset, and the best thing I can do right now is sit here and listen. And I have told patients, like, all right, you sound like you need to vent. So, and maybe I don't verbally say it, but in my head I'm saying it to myself. I'm like, I'm going to sit here and be quiet and just let you vent. And then we're going to go do some shit to take your mind off of that. And so, and that's what the whole nail on the forehead video is like. Like the whole time there's a girl on a couch with a nail on her forehead and her significant other is sitting on the couch looking at the nail on her forehead. And she's like, I've got this stabbing pain right here. And he's like, but, but it's right. And she's like, don't even say it. And he's like, okay. And she's like, every time I go to put a sweater on, I tear a hole in it. And he's like, but honey, it's right. And she's like, I swear to God, if you say it, he's like, okay. And that's really what it's like. Like, I'm just going to sit here and listen to you vent to me. And I'm not going to try to fix this for you. Uh, mandatory reads for clinicians. <sighs> Everything. Oh, uh, man. Um, <laughs> All the citations that we quoted this weekend. Yeah. I would say if I were going to recommend three things, oh, let's, let's play the game. Damn it. Um, I would say Being Wrong by Katherine Schultz, required reading for everyone. Like I've like bought students copies of that at this point. Uh, Thinking Fast and Slow yeah. by Daniel Kahneman, required reading. Um, and then... If you PubMed index Steve George, have fun. This is like when people ask me what's your favorite movie. I'm like, which genre and which decade? Obviously, there's going to be some relevancy to what I've been reading most recently, because that's what's fresh in my memory. Misinformation Age, The Spread of False Beliefs by Caitlin O'Connor, like fundamentally changed the way I view knowledge acquisition. And there was a lot of like challenges of like, oh, none of the knowledge I actually have is my own. like. And I'm basing a lot of my decisions off of other people's work and the knowledge that they've acquired, and I'm just hoping they're right. Uh, and it gets at like even the flaws of science and like how we can create pockets of scientists who are building off of prior scientists, but they're not speaking to other scientists who think differently. Now this just perpetuates false beliefs. So that, I think that's like top of my list. Um, I mean, I think pain-related. Like people ask me about pain all the time. And my very strong bias at this point is stoicism, because I think it has a lot of applicability to like what current research is showing us in the field of pain about perception, action, and will, <laughs> which is some of the stuff I talked about yesterday. So I think that's a big one, just about like how to view someone experiencing pain and you yourself with pain, how to alter perceptions, what are the actions that I'm in control of, what's external to me that I shouldn't worry about, and then the will to endure. So I say... The book I usually recommend for that is William Irvine, which is a guide to the good life, which is a good introduction to like, this is what stoicism is, here's where it originated, and then here's the modern version of stoicism. Um, third one, I think just because it, as it relates to treatments, experiencing the impossible, the science of magic, is another really good one. Because you're like, oh wow. Like, it goes into things like, your brain has subconsciously processed your actions 10 seconds before it comes to consciousness. Um, <laughs> I would also throw in on that Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. That's a really good book. Yeah. yeah. So uh, Viktor Frankl is a psychiatrist who lived through a concentration camp, and he basically talks about, like, this is how I survived when he lost everyone, everyone around him, didn't know when he was going to get out. And that builds into stoicism a lot. Yeah, he's well. kind of one of the uh, attributed as one of the founders of some of the CBT stuff. And like just the story, like you read it and I don't know that I could use the phrase I've had a bad day after I read that book. It's all in your perception. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like he talks about with perception, like his small wins on a daily basis for like, I guess I'm going to get beaten today and not eat all day and get no water. But I'm still in control on how I perceive all of that. So that's my win for the yeah, day. Yeah, I, I picked the guard that doesn't hit me as hard. Right. Really good book. And it's a short read. Uh, you, you could probably read that in a weekend. It's not very long. So those would be books. Uh, research. So this doesn't abide by your rule of three. 
But I did create a clinician's like research guide of all the things that I thought were important, but it is tilted towards like pain, pain discussions. That's actually on the Barbell Medicine Forum, I think. It's also on my Instagram page. It's probably 20 articles that I think are relevant for clinical context for having pain conversations. So that's going to be like my out for the, uh, the research stuff. Cool. Yeah. That actually wraps up all of the questions we have submitted. Are there any questions that you guys want to ask us now? Because we have time. It's only 5.54. So since we're mic'd up, I, I'm going to repeat it. Steph's question was, do I find more problems getting hamstring strength back after a hamstring graft versus quad strength back after a bone patellar bone graft? Um, all variables related to nerve blocks and everything aside. Um, I think sometimes I'm certainly guilty of overemphasizing quad strength and then doing a nice kinetic test and being like, oh, probably should start deadlifting this person a little bit more. And, but I also think like having objective outcome measures makes you acutely aware of the deficits on where you need to work as well. So it's kind of nice to, like normally um, if I have access to a nice kinetic dynamometer, I like getting people on at like six weeks just to kind of get a state of the union and see how much we need to do. And if their quad is already relatively within the spectrum of where it needs to be and their hamstring isn't, then it's like, congratulations, we're, we're going straight to hammy town. Um, I don't know that I would say, I, I honestly think like probably four years ago, I would have said I have more trouble getting hamstring back than quads, but I think I've also moved more now into like a little bit more expanded programming to where I'm trying to be diligent about having a quadricep exercise. And, and I understand a squat gets more than your quad, but like, uh, like something like that and something that's a little bit more hamstring focused in the program overall. But once again, this is why some of my ACLs are in clinic for two hours. Like how long is the average high school practice? Two hours, okay? So um, I wanna keep my athlete around that long as well. How do you see people who are contemplating total hip replacements or total knee replacements and have had the ability to have input in their decision making? And if so, can you envision a circumstance where you would advise for it? Ooh, good question. Yeah. Um, I've definitely recommended it before if we had like major range of motion deficits that were severely limiting and someone had some buy-in to where they thought that's what they needed, I would advocate for it. I think at this point, the outcomes on it are good enough to where I would feel perfectly comfortable saying, you know, you have these issues, we, if this is what you want to do, I'm all for it. Let's let's go get it done. Um, but I also would like to try and sell it as like, well, the stronger you are going into surgery, the better you're going to be afterwards. But I've, it's an interesting conversation because there is a decent amount of nuance to it. Because I think some of the things that would lead me towards advocating for it a little bit more would also be things that would probably hedge me towards not as positive an outcome after they had it. Like if there was like a long-term range of motion restriction especially like for a TKA where a total knee, um, where they really had like lack terminal knee extension and like what would be classified by anyone's standards in antalgic gait. Like I'd be like, yeah, this may be beneficial. But the problem is like, if you've been walking like that, it's not like everything else is going to get magically stretched out. So like it, it kind of cuts both ways out of that. A lot of they get set expectations of recovery too, like yeah. going into the surgery. Yeah, I mean, I had a gentleman at Florida who had, like, in this dude, I was like, yeah, go do it. Uh, he was having pain walking, and his goal was to ask to grass squat. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, go do it. I'll see you next week. I'll, as soon as you're out the hospital, let's go get this party started. I think what people hear, I'm just assuming, so feel free to, like, correct me. When people hear us give the discussion of, like, the multifactorial nature of pain, they extrapolate out to biology doesn't matter. And I think we have to concede at some point a joint's not going to be capable of functioning at the level their expectations are for its functioning. And that's when those conversations can kind of enter into the discussion. I mean, if somebody's hitting their physical activity guidelines and they're still having issue after six, eight weeks of training and they've like made some gains out of it, psh, 
knock yourself out. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I have zero problem with that. Pretty much like the research on that, if, if you're active beforehand, like both of those surgeries have really good outcomes. So I, like if, if you have the proper selection criteria. All right, well, yeah, thank you guys all for coming. Um, if you have questions, you can always get a hold of Mike or I or Amato or Charlie, and you know we'll do our best to help you out. And if you find things that you're like, hey, this doesn't really jive with what you were saying, send it my way, I wanna see it. All right, thank you so much for listening to the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Once again, if you want to join us at the next pain and rehab seminar, it's in Reno, Nevada in January. Click the link in the description below, and that'll give you more information on that. If you're over on iTunes, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast, lets people know what we're doing here in the health and fitness space. Share it with your friends, and we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you for listening.